fellow travellers and welcome to podcast 101 in our series You Should Have Been There with me Simon Calder and me Mick Webb and being very inventive and um, creative media types as it's podcast 101 today's topic is the room 101 of travel but I'd like to start by saying that the uh, well-known TV panel show of the same name actually sells the original idea of room 101 a bit short I'm sure you'll all remember that uh, the idea comes from George Orwell's great novel, 1984. And uh, Room 101 is the place where people who are hostile, uh, rebelling against Big Brother's authoritarian regime, are taken to be tortured psychologically. Um, And the way that happens is that they are exposed to their worst nightmares, fears or phobias. This is explained very well by a character called O'Brien, who's a mysterious, powerful and sophisticated member of Big Brother's inner party. And he says, the worst thing in the world varies from individual to individual. It may be burial alive or death by fire or by drowning or by impalement or 50 other deaths. There are cases, though, where it is some quite trivial thing, not even fatal. And I sort of think that that's what we're going to be concentrating on a little bit later, uh, impalement, being buried alive. Um, those don't have little generally to do with um, with travel, but um, there are many, many uh, seemingly trivial things which can cause um, a, a huge amount of consternation and indeed nightmares, fears and phobias. Um, we'll leave you on tenterhooks while we catch up, as promised, with some tweets from listeners. I'll start with Jules for reasons that will become clear, Jules was commenting on last week's podcast, our 100th, and I promise that we didn't write this. Many congratulations on reaching reaching 100, the show, not your individual ages. I'd like to say not even our combined ages. <coughs> um, I really enjoyed listening to them, and I'm looking forward to many more. Are you, Mick? Oh, well, I'm uh, certainly looking forward to receiving more tweets like that one from Jules. Now, the subject of travel breakfasts, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, seemed to resonate with many. Julie Ward tweeted, The breakfast Tui gave us on the flight back from Jamaica to Manchester yesterday was disgusting. Dried up omelette, a few potatoes and beans. No milk for the tea and coffee either. After a long-haul flight, I'd have expected better than that. And then she signs off with a very angry red face emoji, wearing a mask. Emojis don't work that well in sound, do they? But I guess a big Rosbury for Tui. <laughs> Meanwhile, Janet sent her a picture of her breakfast, possibly the worst ever. Um, spinach, tomato, something else, not quite sure what the other item is, but she does concede at least it's cooked. While Beza reports that coffee or tea with fruit gives me indigestion. British Airways returning from the US supplied a sweet croissant with rubbery tasteless Swiss cheese and tomato. Disgusting. First time ever skipped breakfast on a plane. I think, um, to be fair, these situations all seem to be people who have thrown thousands of miles um, and have been eating meals that were prepared probably 24 hours earlier. And they are never, ever going to be... um, uh, uh, particularly appetising, I would say. Also, they do tend to be served at um, 
really quite the wrong time of day. Uh, so actually, even if it was an absolutely um, five-star breakfast experience, it's quite hard to um, really do it full justice and enjoy it, um, I, in my experience. Yes, and it's always worth taking your own fresh food on board planes if you are allowed to, because that way you know you're going to get something vaguely nourishing and appetising. Yeah, good tip. Um, on a happier um, terrestrial breakfast note, Rebecca Halpin told us, we like buffet breakfasts, good for fueling teenage children for the day, especially those that include some local specialities. Meanwhile, Anthony Johnson tweets, can I recommend the restaurant chain Grably in Moscow for breakfast, the Kasha porridge, Surniki cottage cheese pancakes, and coffee were a great preparation for a day's walking. Well, you're our um, you're our resident Russophile, Simon. Is Anthony right about the breakfasts? And uh, did I get the uh, pronunciation right? That that was very good. Uh, yes, he 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 and I are very impressed. And uh, the, there is a huge difference between the breakfast that you would buy going to a chain like Grably, where you would just go in and order a very, very scrumptious breakfast and what you are served up because it's included in the price with your um, hotel uh, room, which is absolutely guaranteed to be unappetizing at best. And finally, on the Twitter front, if anyone was left wondering by Will Close's enigmatic comment, don't forget the big roles, I will try and explain what that's all about. Will, uh, who is a very good friend of uh, my elder son, Alec was invited to a party at Alec's flat. And Alec said to me, Dad, we haven't got enough rolls for the burgers. Can you get in touch with Will and ask him to bring some? So I did. And I texted Will saying, um, could you bring big rolls, please? Lots of them. And when Will turned up half an hour later, he was carrying an armful of toilet rolls. <laughs> And I, there was me thinking this this uh, story had something to do, surely, with um, a large Bentley. But uh, no, big rolls it is. Very, very good. Um, I, 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 I don't know where where else that story goes, but I think we should. Um, uh, I, I think we should <laughs> pause there now. <laughs> Well, I can't put it off any longer. Um, imagine sinister music, maybe a, a roll of distant thunder. This is the Traveller's Room 101. Tell me, Mick, about your biggest travel fear. Well, I have been giving this quite a lot of thought and getting quite anxious in the process. Um, one of my major fears is catching malaria. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, oh. And I think this dates from a time when I went to Zimbabwe uh, in the 90s. And I had been prescribed uh, what at the time was the standard regime of pills. I can't remember what they were. Uh, chloroquine, chloroquine and, um, and yes. nivoquine. And, Paludrine. And then when yes. I got there, I realized that the expats who lived there and were in the know and had the money were actually on a completely different um, set of pills because the prevailing strain of malaria uh, at the time was was cerebral malaria, which was um, uh, particularly mm. unpleasant. And it was open to question whether my pills were actually going to be any good against it. Um, uh, I, I spoke to a few people, one of whom told me about how he'd had malaria and said that for three days he was terrified he was going to die. And then he spent the next three in hospital wishing that he would die. So that was a 
good start. Um, then I was I, yes. I, I was then cheerfully told by somebody who I was going on a long trip into the uh, into the felt with that uh, the f- person they'd taken on this trip the year before had got cerebral malaria and was now blind and deaf. Um, and so, I, uh, so I began to, um, I, I suppose, exhibit symptoms of paranoia. So while other people sat around in the uh, the beautiful uh, subtropical evenings in shorts and t-shirts and things, I had what you might call full PPE on and was um, <laughs> was covered in uh, in DEET uh, to the extent that I think quite a lot of my uh, skin was melted off. So malaria, and I'm still very um, worried about it. And I can certainly imagine um, uh, being in room 101 and having the uh, the, the buzzing of mosquitoes um, played mm. and beginning to feel more and more panic-stricken and ready to betray my uh, nearest and dearest. Uh, in fact, this is now reminding me of an absolutely horrible night, which I did spend on the felt uh, in a hammock with a very good mosquito net and uh, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, I really must have a pee. And uh, and then hearing this buzzing, it was so loud uh, of all the mosquitoes mm. waiting outside to get me and trying to decide um, how best to resolve this dilemma. Look, this is a really serious thing. Clearly, malaria, big problem. Uh, m- uh, mosquitoes spread all manner of all vile disease. So I'm there with you in full PPE, Mick. But um, PPE plus needing a P does not always end well. PPPE, perhaps, but let's move <laughs> on to your confession. Uh, I, having travelled with you a lot in um, mountainous um, regions, imagine vertigo must come quite near the top of your list. Uh, yes, it does. I, uh, like the rest of my family, have a very profound fear of heights, and that has manifested itself um, more than once um, when you and I have been walking. And I should say, uh, dear listener, that um, whatever you might think of Mick, in a crisis, he is uh, remarkably good and has helped me and indeed my slightly over overstuffed rucksack down some tricky gradients. And also, is 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 um uh not. Uh, not not dismissive of my fears. And so you, you are very kind to it. But uh, it, it remains the case that we go to lots of places involving mountains, which inevitably have things like ledges. And um, uh, I'm often quite uh, uh, quite perplexed by these things. Um, yeah, but I think you yeah. should describe exactly yeah. what it's like, what the feeling is, because um, I have sort of odd moments when I think, oh, dear, why am I on this dreadful slope and what should I do about it? But I kind of managed to remain rational and think, well, if I take my pack off, is that going to help? Is it not? And I I kind of generally managed to get out of the thing um, more or less unscathed. Yeah, I I am absolutely... Um, I, I, I behave in ways which which actually increase the danger, which is sort of quite a phobic thing to do. Oh. And so, for example, I will, if there is a, a, a terrifying drop to the right, um, I will lurch over to the left with my pack and sort of scrape against the wall in a way oh. which is um, uh, likely to trigger some, some immediate uh, and un- unexpected swerve um, to, to, you know, a thousand feet to... Um, uh, a, a, a sticky end. Um, and yes, absolutely, I can understand that in normal life, if you've got a 
a, a foot wide path um, on ground level. I could walk for a mile and stay on it. But um, suddenly, if you're on a ridge um, high in the in the mountains, um, it uh, it becomes um, uh, far more plausible that you could indeed plummet. And and it's uh, the only way I can work on it. And it has gradually improved is by constantly challenging it, facing up to it, um, usually with another pressure involved, which is um, the fact that uh, unless I can get past this, then um, all is lost in the sense that, well, certainly you and I have been in various parts of the Pyrenees, where if you do not get to um, your destination, it's going to get dark and very dangerous and retreating the way you came is simply not a possibility. And so so you can kind of get through it. Um, and clearly, I, I haven't uh, come to any any fatal scrapes, but it's just just one of those things that I I do still have dreams about in a uh, a, a very very scary way but uh goodness it is it is absolutely room 101 for me well in case anybody thinks that i am actually an ideal traveling companion <laughs> i might say that uh, uh, one of these vertiginous um occasions which comes to my mind involved walking along this beautiful very high ridge path called the crête de parla uh, which is somewhere in the western Pyrenees, uh, right along the border uh, with Spain, uh, obviously just in France. And uh, as we came down off the ridge, and I thought, well, that's uh, that's done then, uh, we came to a bit of path which sort of went round a boulder. And I must say, <laughs> the boulder did um, project over the valley, which was <laughs> quite a long way down. Um, and uh, you were uh, stuck and, um, and it was a long way back and an even longer way round. And uh, I remember starting off by um, trying to shame you into, uh, <laughs> into doing it <laughs> by, by, by pointing out that a group of ramblers had managed to um, negotiate this as though the boulder wasn't there at all. And they weren't uh, sort of a thousand feet up with a, a sheer drop beside them and what's more they were clearly um the french equivalent of a saga tour from toulouse <laughs> having a day out but that didn't actually work did it and uh, eventually i did actually have to um not only carry your rucksack which is ridiculously twice the weight of my one round the um, boulder and then leave it on the other side and then come and um, coax you along uh, which sort of worked quite well really in the end and uh, we did we did after <laughs> quite a long time get there and um, uh, then we were probably late for supper but the lateness uh, reference does does take me on to my second um, fear which is of missing flights uh, I'm not too fussed about missing ferries or trains or buses but the idea of missing a plane particularly when it's um leaving our uh, our fair uh, green land to go somewhere else uh, for some reason um throws me into a right state <laughs> and uh, the of course upshot of this is i uh, i 
get up ridiculously early um, to get to airports. Uh, I get to them ridiculously early and then can't think of what to do with the time. But I still find it very hard to um, cultivate what I can only call a laissez-faire attitude to this kind of thing, which uh, which you have. And I did once start writing a great travel uh, memoir called Travels with My Editor, when you were the editor of things that I wrote. Um, and I'm going to read you a piece of it, if you don't mind. I'd, I'd love to hear it, Mick. Travels with my editor. When it comes to air travel, there are two kinds of people. Those who get to the airport early and those who see every minute spent in the confines of a departure hall as a deduction from their lives. I am squarely in the first group and would no more miss a plane than my wedding, say, or the start of a football match. While my regular <laughs> hiking companion, the travel editor, is an extreme example of the second type, which is why he is not here at Gatwick Airport, but I am, with my rucksack already safely checked in as oversized baggage, anxiously scanning the departure board for news of the flight to Toulouse. There's a momentary scare when delayed until 1.20am comes up next to something beginning with T and has me scrabbling for my glasses. But with the benefit of sight, the destination turns out to be uh, Tallinn, which is fortunate, unless, of course, you were bound for Estonia. Now, this is a case of déjà vu, even if my travelling companion is far from being vu. For some years, we've been taking annual trips to the Pyrenees to walk stretches of France's legendary long-distance footpath, the GR10. The plan this time is for us to spend three or four days exploring the rugged countryside of the High Ariège, which is the mountainous department once famous for its mines and its bear tamers, nowadays mostly for its ruggedness and the fact that Tony Blair used to holiday there. That dates us, doesn't it? Anyway... I say we and us advisedly, and am considering what it would be like tackling the high plateaus of the Ariège alone, when with at least a minute to spare before the cabin doors are closed, the editor arrives quite unfazed, with a huge armful of the previous week's newspapers and magazines to occupy him during the short flight to Toulouse. That was absolutely lovely, and I have had a conversion on the road to Gatwick. I have, and it's entirely caused by COVID, and I am now completely in your camp. And I can, I can, you know, okay, I still sometimes will cut things a bit fine, but generally, because there is so much uncertainty to do with any international journey these days, that I will get to the airport four hours early so that if there is a trap that I've I've, I've, I've um, uh, missed or there's a document I don't have or there's a test I haven't taken. I've got some way of trying to rescue that. And certainly for a recent trip over to Canada, I was glad I did because there's about six things you need. And for some reason, I only had five and I had time to uh, to, to, to survive. Um, and also, also on my trip during the week, which was generally a joy, over to Paris and then uh, to the Burgundy region of France, it really was a sequence of 101 um, issues. So I went to see a, a, a group called Tankers the Henge, their first gig of 2022, 20, uh, uh, which was a great event in a, um, a rather 101 venue. This was the um, uh, the cabaret in the town of uh, Migène in northern Burgundy, where... Uh, <laughs> 
First of all, it said bar ferme, which didn't um, uh, uh, did, didn't improve my mood. Secondly, I, I, I got there a little bit earlier and I said, oh, should I help you move these tables out of the way? And they said, no, the tables have to stay there so that everyone can sit down and be at least one meter apart from everywhere else. Then everybody had to wear a mask through the entire performance apart from the band themselves. But it was a great night and everyone had a fantastic time. Now, it finishes at 11 at night. Mick, I have to be on the 4.10 a.m. from Mijen Station. So, of course, I then, am I going to miss that train? What happens if I miss that train? Well, every disaster unfolds. Um, so I have multiple alarms. I catch that train. OK, I've got um, 57 minutes to get from Gare de Lyon to um, uh, the Eurostar terminal at um, Paris-Nord, at the, the Gare du Nord station, OK? Um, unfortunately, the train gets later and later and later. I know that Eurostar already say um, you've got to get here at least an hour early. Um, we draw in finally to Gare I run out, try to find the RER, which goes there. Not a train for 20 minutes. What am I going to do? I'll find a taxi. No, I can't because there is a taxi, but the man's asleep. <laughs> um, and But there's a bus and I catch the bus and we seem to be doing really quite well in catching up. But no, it's going to go on an entire loop of the Garda Lest and... Eve, oh, just awful. So I get there with 20 minutes to go. Um, and the Eurostar staff, unlike airport um, check-in people, did not say no um, on, on, on your bike. They said, OK, let's try and um, get you through. And they did. But goodness, unnecessary stress. And uh, it, yes, it, it just... Um, uh, I, so, so it was catching trains that, that um, upset me more than planes. But can I tell you about a little... Uh, a little alternative to being uh, a fear of missing a plane, which is, um, or your flight being late or something, which is that your flight, the, the fear that your flight won't be late. Oh, well, that's an interesting spin. Yeah, go on. Right. So, so therefore, this is a product of the fact that um, that, that the passenger rights rules are so ludicrous. <laughs> that um, you can be in the following position, which I was. So I've got a flight across to Moscow, um, all very straightforward. This was pre-COVID. Um, and I had something like a 90-minute connection to, uh, to to a domestic flight to, to Volgograd, formerly Stalingrad. Should have been very straightforward. But the plane got in 45 minutes late from maintenance. And so we were, we were late. And I, unfortunately, the way these things work is that if my flight was sufficiently late so that there was no possibility of me getting through passport control and onto that flight uh, that I was booked on, um, I would get £350 in compensation, which was more than the original flight cost. And so I was willing it to be late. And indeed it was. And I was standing in the great long line for immigration and all these texts kept coming through saying, gate 17, where are you? Your plane is going. And I was just thinking, no, I've missed it. I'll be on the next one and that will be fine and I will bank the money. So I love flights that I can't catch as long as I was actually there in time to catch them. And um, uh, it, so, so it can be quite profitable. Um, this, this is room 102, yes. I think this is. Room 102 is also a sort of strange blend of um, Kafka with George Orwell, I think, but very good fun. Um, well, I'm finding this 
uh, quite a rewarding process, um, confessing my deepest fears. So I would uh, recommend the idea to listeners. So do send us your favourite travel fears, if that's not a contradiction in terms. You can, of course, leave us an audio message. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there or just tweet us at you should have BT. Tell us your deepest travel fear or indeed if you've had some interesting experiences in an actual room 101. Have you ever done that? Mick, you've ever been put into room 101 and how how terrifying was it? Well, I I know that um, getting a key or a key card with 101 on it does kind of give you a bit of a frisson. So you are kind of expecting something awful to happen. I did stay in one which I do remember outside um, Podgorica or Podgorica, the uh, mm. capital of uh, Montenegro. And and the ensuite room came equipped with a really was an all singing, all dancing shower, because as well as having a shower, you could also listen to um, all kinds of music um, by pressing various buttons. And I was actually um, being aware that this was room 101, was quite scared that um, I was going to get electrocuted. But in fact, I, uh, I listened to some um, very jolly um, Balkan turbo folk uh, which certainly sort of helped my ablutions no end <laughs> um, well I, I will I will perhaps um, ask for room 101 in future <laughs> now I'd love to tell you what's going to be happening in the 102 podcast next week but frankly I cannot be certain about it that's because I'm hoping to be off to Australia in time for the grand reopening of that fine country or at least parts of it on the the 21st of February. But I'm not going to spend over a thousand pounds on a ticket until I know for certain whether I'll be allowed in. And the basic plan is that I'm going to take a day out in Qatar, which is the Uh host country for the World Cup, of course, starting in November. um, And I will be able to relay um, live almost um, what life is going to be like for um, our boys, the uh, excellent uh, footballers, not to mention uh, their wives and girlfriends. And of course, any supporters who will be making this rather interesting trip. But as I say, it might all end up that I'm actually at Bognor Regis once again. We shall see. Meanwhile, um, thank you very much indeed for listening. For now, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.